studying Hebrews, looking at chapter, chapter 3 today. Now, when we think of buildings, Hebrews chapter 3, there's a lot of different sorts of buildings, right? They can be simple ones, like barns. You know, a pole barn, just a simple steel structure, something like that. And you go, it's functional, it's good. But no one's going to put something like this down as the annals of greatest construction or buildings, would they? I don't think so. Versus something like One Freedom. Has anyone seen the new One Freedom Tower in New York? Some of you have. How, how did it look there? I haven't been there. Tall. Tall. <laughs> well, it does... It does get up to 1,776 feet with the, with the spire on top, so, but a very impressive building. And then we have classical buildings like the ancient pyramids. Maybe some of you have been there as well and seen the pyramids and just the massiveness of them and how long they've been around. But what are considered really the great buildings of all time, the pyramids, the Colosseum in Rome? I'm sure many of you have seen that going to St. Peter's and seeing at the Vatican and seeing the, uh, the chapel there, or uh, Taj Mahal in India. We could say that, you know, something like a pole barn is, is good. Something like uh, Freedom One is, is really impressive and really quite amazing. And then we have these kind of all-time classics in, in building, great, really the best of the best, ones that have withstood stood the test of time and have really shown themselves to be great in tar- architectural and function and longevity, the best in our, in our history, could say. And as we consider that, I think that's a helpful little introduction to this third letter of Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand about Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is best. Jesus Christ is superior. Jesus Christ is, is greater than anyone else. And that Jesus is the one we should worship and follow. And that he's incomparable. And in doing that, he's saying Jesus is the superior form of God's expression to us. That Jesus is better. He's better than any, anyone else. And thus, he's greater. And the book of Hebrews is holding up Jesus as superior and greater to all else. And and in the light of the the building connection, the writer brings something out in that that we want to look at as we consider the incomparable Jesus. And let's look first at the supreme builder. Supreme builder. In the first few verses, we we see that that Jesus, therefore, verse 3, verse one in chapter three. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, share who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts in Jesus, whom acknowledge as our apostle and priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he's saying that Jesus is to the one that we're supposed to focus on, that we're supposed to look at. The question arises is who's greater, the builder or the building? Now we know these buildings. But is the builder greater than the building, or is the building greater than the builder? I mean, which one is it going to be? Well, it's got to be the builder, doesn't it? Because the builder is the one who enables the building to be built. And with the resources and time, the builder could probably do it again, such as the Colosseum by Vespian, St. Peter's, Michelangelo, the Taj Mahal by Lahore 
and freedom won David Childs. Who's greater? And I would say the builder is greater. The one who designed it, the one who conceived it, the one who was oversaw it being put together. Because they could build something again, likely if it was the situation was such. So the architect, the designer, is greater than their creation. In fact, we could say that in any building, there's no perfect building. There's, has anyone done a project and done a perfect project? Has anyone ever accomplished that? There isn't get to the angle. Well, if we did it over, we would tweak this, we'd change this, we would add a little space here. It always works like that, doesn't it? Because we, could, we always think, how could we do it better? What could we improve on? So there is no perfect building. Verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. So the writer of Hebrews takes this idea that the, the designer, the architect, the builder is greater than the building itself. And that's an important concept as, he, as the author is trying to help us understand Jesus, especially here in relationship with Moses. So Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. And the analogy is just as the builder of house is greater than the house itself. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now we may say, now why in the world is he talking about that? Why, why is he comparing it to Moses? Well, it's helpful for us to realize that there's a reason. Because Moses was and still is the greatest of all the Jews. When we look at Moses, he's the greatest of all the Jews. As we look through the, the, the stories, we may say, well, really, he's greater than David? He's greater than Joseph? He's greater than all of them? But he is because of one fact primarily. Moses was the one that God used to mediate the law, that first testament, that first covenant to the people of Israel. And Moses was the one through whom God spoke and gave the law to pass unto the people. And because of that, the Jews, the Hebrews, always looked at Moses as the greatest of all the Jews, greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than all the prophets, priests, and kings, all the other Jews in history. Moses was and still is the greatest of them all. Well, what did Moses do? Moses led the people out of slavery and into the uh, into the verge of the promised land where they could see it. He led the people away from Pharaoh, 40 years in the desert, leading them, even though they were angry and rebelled against him and they rebelled against his leadership. He interceded with the people for, and pleaded with God for God's mercy towards the people, even when God says, okay, these people, I'm done with them. Moses says, no, Lord, don't do that. And these, along with uh, the whole idea of Moses being the one who mediated the law to the people, makes him the greatest of all the Jews. And that was the greatest, giving them the law, the testament, the first covenant. The law was the word of life to the Israelites, to the Jews. Thus Moses was the greatest of the people of God. That's the, the way that the Hebrews thought, the way they saw it and understood, which is why the writer of Hebrews picks up Moses from the Old Testament to try to show Jesus is greater than even Moses, as Jesus is the builder and Moses, Moses built, but Jesus is over that. We could say here, Jesus, the new covenant, is greater than Moses of the first covenant. The scriptures is trying to help us understand what, what Jesus has done and put it in the context of the Old Testament, how it flows from the Old 
Testament, that first covenant, to the New Testament, the new covenant through Jesus. No longer a covenant through animals or through stone tablets, but a covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. For Jesus has done something entirely different above and beyond what Moses did or could even do. And it's essential that the people of God completely understand that Jesus is superior and his work is greater than what Moses has done. As Moses was the mediator of the first covenant, but that first covenant was still lacking in in various ways. It was lacking because the sin could not be taken away permanently. But what they had to every year go into the go into this to the temple and sacrifice animals on that day of atonement. And it just this past week, our Jewish brother, our friends and brothers and sisters, they had Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, from Wednesday evening through uh, Tuesday evening through Wednesday evening. And it, it's interesting how that's kind of evolved because obviously they don't have they don't have the, the temple anymore. So it's, it's kind of a day of personal prayer and, and repentance as they're together. But it has to be done every year because it, the sins haven't been totally taken away through the first covenant. Jesus has come and done something greater. He has taken away the sins, our sins, permanently, where it doesn't, the sacrifice doesn't have to be repeated. Jesus came and through his death, his blood shed, sins were forgiven and everyone who looks to him and receives him by faith has their sins forgiven once and for all so that we are right before God and receive his righteousness. And while we confess our sins when we go wrong, our sins have been forgiven and we have the righteousness of Christ given to us. Well, in the Old Testament, it had to be done repeatedly over and over. The New Testament, Christ did it once and for all, showing that what Christ did in his work was greater and better. It was the greatest work of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who was able to do it. And it is interesting to see in the in the Old Testament scriptures, that Moses looked forward to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord said to me, what they said is good, and that's Moses speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. Moses said this about the one God was going to raise up who is coming as the Lord spoke to him. And who is that but Jesus? And Jesus, as he's communicating and talking with the the spiritual leaders, he says, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. Jesus sees that Moses was talking about him. Back in Deuteronomy, as Moses looked forward and said, God is going to do something greater, better than me. And Jesus reiterates that in John chapter 5 here, that this highlights what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. Verse 3 again. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is greater honor than the house itself. So Jesus has greater honor, better and higher and more substantial than Moses. He's superior. I read an article not that long ago by a contemporary devout Jewish scholar who considered Jesus and says, we don't need Jesus because we have Moses. That's the, the mindset the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that God gave Moses to the people for a time, a time. And it's there and it's good, but it's to re- reveal and show and point us to Jesus, who is God's great and perfect work for us. That was Moses' plan and intent. That's what God had for him to do, to 
keep sin in check until the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die for our sins. Jesus then must be superior to Moses. And by representation, the law that Moses gave as the builder is greater than the building. So Jesus is superior to Moses, the new covenant, to the old covenant. Well, not just the supreme builder, who is Jesus, but our stubbornness to building. And then the writer of Hebrews goes, goes back into the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament and says, okay, let's look at kind of how we responded to what Moses taught you and how we have to change and be different. And he calls out that there is a stubbornness to the people of God through history. And he expands his point, illustrating, because when Moses gave the law to people in Exodus chapter 19, they promised to obey, to follow God, to humble themselves under the word and to receive it and live by it, which was wonderful at the foot of the mountain, Exodus 19 and into chapter 20. In the counter with God, the leader said they would do everything the Lord has said. They saw the power of God delivering them from Egypt. They commit themselves to God, and God said, you are my treasured possession. So God took them out of slavery, and he values them greatly. He wants to bless them, give them freedom and prosperity. Yet what happens? But in a few months, Israel accepts, though they accepted and committed themselves to God, in a few months, they were starting to go their own way rather than God's way, to do things their way, to not listen to God to not follow him by faith. In other words, they, they didn't believe. Verse 8, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. As Moses led the people out through the, the challenges they faced through that times of testing, the Israelites too often would, would turn to their own ways rather than trusting God. And they hardened their hearts to what God wanted them to do and committing themselves to doing their way rather than God's way. And as that point of reference we have here in verses, in verses uh, 7 through 11, we have a quote from Psalm speaking of what the Israelites did. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath my anger. They shall never enter my rest. That's the writer of Hebrews quoting from Psalms as the psalmist is recounting the battles, the struggles that the Israelites had to obey that first covenant, the covenant that, that Moses had given the people where the nation fell short. They didn't follow as they needed to. They hardened their hearts to God's voice rather than followed him. And hardened hearts really are is unbelief. That's really what he's getting at. When we harden our hearts, we, we don't believe, we don't accept, we don't trust what God wants for us, what God has for us. But we see the obstacles, we see the difficulties, and we focus on them rather than on Jesus Christ, God who can do what we need, his timing and his way. We remember that for those who resisted God in Israel, it didn't end well for them because they didn't have the opportunity to enter the promised land because they disobeyed God and they rejected him. For those who heard God's voice, God said none would enter the rest if they did not believe. 
And then he says to us, verse 12, see that none of you have that sort of heart. That's the warning for us. Because indifference is a part of an insurgency against God. We could say that indifference. The idea is say, well, it's not that I don't believe, but yet there's indifference in people's hearts. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's there, but it's not a big deal. We're just yeah, kind of indifferent. But indifference really is rebellion from God. We see that because it's not just active saying, no, I'm going to fight against you. I'm going to fight against you, God. I'm going to oppose you. We just go, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. It's not a big deal to me. The Lord is displeased with us because that's part of the hardening the hearts. Rather than being receptive and honoring God and, and following him with a warm and passionate heart, if we're indifferent, we're saying, eh, my way is just as good. That's a form of disbelief, of insurgency against God. In the Mideast, we, we hear about insurgents, those groups that are kind of underground. They come up and then they, they attack uh, the, the government and so forth. But really, if we don't believe, we are really part of an insurgency against God because we are to be people of hearts that believe. Because if we're indifferent to God, we're indifferent to the ways of God. We're indifferent to the plans of God. We're indifferent to the future God has made because we're so enraptured or caught up with ourselves where we put ourselves above God's plane, above God's way, and that we, like Israel in the past, go our way rather than listen to God. And the writer, the writer says, don't be like that. Don't be like that, people. Listen, let's learn from their example. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We worship, we serve a living God who loves us, who has brought forth Christ, who's alive and well in our world. And he says, don't, don't harden your hearts. Don't have an unbelieving heart because that will turn you away from God. And we will find the folly of the Israelites in the desert and never enter his rest, never enter that eternal life that God has for us if we live in that way rather than follow him. See to it that we don't have this unbelieving heart we don't want to share the fate of Israel in the desert. So let's not tolerate unbelief or indifference in our hearts. For this indifference to God, maybe not outright rejection, but it elevates our ways above God's and will mess us up in our relationship with him. It didn't work for the Israelites, and I guarantee it will not work for us. Indifference is moving away from the builder and creator of our world for his promises and getting caught up with some other system, which is only a building, we could say, that will not last. The philosophies of our world, science, political, economic, materialism, whatever it is, they may have value and have worth, but none of them are substitutes for our Commitment, our relationship, our first putting in first place a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are careful, who are fearful of having a hard heart, of having indifference to God, so that we don't get lost in the wilderness. Well, lastly, successful building. Successful building, what does it mean? How do we walk with God? How do we not have hard hearts, but how do we be people? who walk with God in sincerity and faith that pleases him. Trust and confidence in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will bring us 
into that promised land, the kingdom of God, heaven, as the scriptures revealed. That which couldn't be gained through Moses now can be gained through faith in Christ. So what does that faith in Christ look like? What, what does that mean? How, how does that shape itself for us? Well, I think there's four things that the, the, letter, the writer here speaks to us in chapter 3 that can help us about what it means to, to walk in faith, to have a soft and, and malleable heart before God. First, he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The word to be a people who have our mental life, it's anchored in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, so that we begin there. If we're his house, we need to be people. Verse 6, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence, we have confidence, trust, dependence on God, and we can hold firmly to that, that's something that we can grab onto and know that it won't give way. So we can persevere. Thirdly, to encourage one another, but encourage one another so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So as we fix our thoughts on Jesus, we hold firm, and we are to be one who encourage each other. It's part of a communal, community-based living. It's part of the, the mercy commons, the commons part, where we do this together, where we're in it together. It's not just all of us individually, but it's us as individuals together in community with Christ to encourage and build up one another. And if we share this in Christ, if we hold firmly to this, we can have the confidence that we will hold firmly to the very end. Because we need to be the people who trust God, who believe, who never give up, who press on with the help of the Holy Spirit to the very end, to the Lord calls us home or he returns. And it's out of this we see what a, a faith that is pleasing to God, a sincere faith, really looks like. This is the opposite of indifference to Christ. We could say that, that if you're to focus on Jesus, it means to think, to think carefully, to fix your focus, be careful. If we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, maybe some of you like hiking. Anyone like hiking, go out in the woods and you know, they've done studies, and if you go out into a vast tract of land and you just hike, there's a natural tendency for us to kind of actually start going in circles because maybe we, we one leg's a little stronger and we're just kind of wandering. We don't have any bearings, and in the woods, you can't really tell. And they've, they've shown this where people tend to go in circles or kind of move to the left or right. And what's one way, what's a good way to prevent that? You fix your eyes on where you're going. So maybe you see a tree a quarter of a mile away and you walk to that tree. And when you get there, you fix your eyes on something farther ahead and you, and you focus on that and you walk to that. And that enables us to what? To walk in a line to where we're going rather than lose track and go left or go right. Because we're fixing our minds on that. We can say that's really what the author is trying to help us do, to fix our eyes on Jesus. As we fix our eyes on Jesus in life, that enables us then to live and to walk by faith in Christ, pleasing God. Because if we're fixed on Christ, we know where we're going. So we don't wander to the left, we don't wander to the right. Sometimes we trip, we stumble, we fall short. But we get up and we continue to walk fixed on Jesus. That's what the writer is trying to encourage us to do. So we have this life of faith. A life of faith where we hold firmly to Jesus, hold firmly to what he has for us. We have our thoughts, our hearts on him. 
And in verses 6 and 14, we see conditional clauses, the if sentences. If we hold firmly to our confidence and hope, then we are his house, we are his building. And if we hold firmly to the end, our belief we held at first, then we'll share in all that belongs to God. That if we are people who press on with the strength of the Spirit within us, that we will share in what God has for us. We will find that eternal rest, that heavenly home that God has for all his children, everyone who loves him and follows him by faith. That's God's promise. We will not be like the Israelites who fell in the desert because they didn't fix their eyes on God, but we'll be people who will because we're fixed and following God. The whole idea is trust is in Christ is not a one-time occurrence. We don't trust Christ and say, okay, I did that, now I move on in life. It's not just for a season of life. It isn't just for those times we need him most. But faith in Christ is for every day and is lasting. And we contrast that with those who are in Moses, who at the foot of the mountain promised to follow God and walk with him and be his treasured possession. But yet, in but weeks... When times of testing and trouble came, they abandoned God and went back to their own ways. They didn't press on. They didn't fix their minds on on God. They went and did their own thing, and thus they weren't able to enter the rest. We need to be people like Joseph, Esther, Daniel, Job, the apostles, and other heroes of the faith who pressed on in faith and receive the, the reward of their faith, salvation of their souls. Faith, the conviction that continues in the builder of the house, Jesus Christ. We need to be people who can look beyond the temporary nature of our lives. And all of us, on our daily living, uh, work, family, kids, finances, relationships, activities, hobbies, whatever it is, all can be really great stuff and good things and blessings of God. But those are parts of life. They're not the focus and the central core of life. The central core of life is to be fixed on Jesus Christ. And all the rest are to find their place around and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because everything else is temporary. So we need to be people who aren't trapped by the immediate, the pressing, and miss the lasting and more important that we are people who press on in faith. As we are to be people who encourage, encourage. I I love that that statement, verse 13. This really, I think, speaks to it. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So encourage one another daily, each and every day. How? How? together as the body of Christ so that none of us become hardened, so that as we lift each other up, encourage one another, we're helping each other to press on faith. This is not a solitary journey that we go alone, but a journey that we're supposed to walk together as God's people. And I think that is such a great encouragement to our spirits and a great plan of God so that we can be God's people together, so we can invite, advise, embolden, warn, exhort, encourage, call near, however we want to look at it. But we can be that together as God's people. And we do it not just occasionally, but we're to be doing it how? Daily, as God's people, as his church, as the body of Christ. Is this the relationship we have with one another? Is this how we 
live our lives in Christ. Going on, so we encourage one another, and we're doing it on a regular, daily basis. That's what God wants us. We're spurring one another on. I know I have a group I meet Wednesday mornings, a group of, of men, and we encourage one another and pray for each other. And we'll be doing this, we've been doing this for some 12 plus years. And it's such a blessing to my soul to, to speak into other people's lives and have them speak into my life, to pray for each other and encourage one another so that we journey along together. This is what God is calling us to be, people who do this together, who live this life, who live for Christ, walk in him as a, as a community. Harry Houdini, probably many of you are familiar with him, at least in back in history, but Harry Houdini was the great escape artist of 100 years ago. Magicians and escape artists was, before television and movies, things like this were some of the biggest things around. And Harry Houdini was someone who has been able to get out of virtually any kind of constraint, handcuffs, locks, boxes, or anything that they put together. And he said, I can get out of any handcuffs. You see example here as he's got multiple ones there. Well, some, one blacksmith in, in England took up this challenge, and for five years he worked to develop a pair of cuffs, locks, that Houdini, even Houdini couldn't get out of <laughs> over five years. So he put a lot of time, effort, and models together, and eventually he settled on one, and he wrote to Houdini, he says, I have a pair of handcuffs that you can't get out. And Houdini saw this and was intrigued, and he took up the challenge. And so at a big theater, they had a crowd of, of hundreds, if not a 1,000 people gathered who paid a certain amount of money to see this. The great Houdini, would he be able to escape? And so he gets locked in these cuffs, and they put up a kind of a, a curtain, you know, about this high. And Houdini got behind it and started trying to get out. And after he could hear him and see it moving, but they couldn't see what he was doing specifically. And after 10 minutes, he stood up. People thought, oh, he was still there, but he, he, he stood up to stretch. And then there was another, went down and was working, and the band, there was a band there, and the band was playing, and the tension was rising. And after another 15 minutes, Houdini got up again and, and stretched, and he actually used his teeth to rip off his top coat because he had to kind of flex and and then there was another period of time. And at 20 minutes later, he stood up and he was readjusting himself, stretching his legs that were cramping. And then he went down one final time. And 10 minutes later, he came back up to the roar of the crowd where the, the handcuffs were off. And they asked him afterwards, why didn't you stand up a couple times? Why'd you do it? He said, this was one of the greatest challenges I've ever had. And I needed the encouragement of the crowd to spur me on to get these cuffs off. I thought, what a great example for us. We need that encouragement of each other to do God's work, to do his will, to follow him in a world that is kind of doing their own thing that's indifferent to God, to be God's people who together are living for Jesus Christ. And we, we want Jesus to be the one who builds our lives, the builder for life, we could say, that Jesus Christ, no one else is, is the one we follow. And so what I want to suggest, and this is, this is an idea. We have to flesh this out, and I've talked to Aaron a little bit about this, is as the writer of Hebrews says, encourage each other, one another daily, so that we can press on together. 
I'd like us to think about having a 30-day challenge to encourage one another daily. That we would be a, a people who say, okay, let's, let's commit to encouraging each other, encouraging believers, you know, with, with, with our community and certainly the others that we cross paths with. But that over 30 days that we would do this and that we would come up with a texting or messaging system where we could just share those with each other so that we're building the body up with what God's doing in our midst. So how this is going to look, I'm not exactly sure, but we're going to work on it this week. And I'm going to ask that we consider doing this as a community of faith here at Mercy Commons, that we would uh, see if we can encourage one another Somehow, once a day, we encourage somebody, another believer, someone that we come across, and that we'd share with, the with each other the opportunities God gives us so that we can build each other in the faith. faith. So the, the whole idea is what? So that we encourage one another as it's today, so that none of us may be hardened by sins and deceitfulness, that we would see God work, it would keep our hearts soft and our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because the... The opposite of that is what we see at the end of the chapel, at the end of the chapter. So we see that they, the Israelites, were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Their hearts were hardened, and they weren't able to enter the promised land. The one, that first generation all died in those 40 years wandering because they had hearts that weren't open to God, who didn't believe, who were indifferent or disbelief, and they hardened their hearts to God. And God raised up a new generation to go in. And I'm asking that we would be a people unlike them, but a people who do go in, a people who live by faith in Jesus Christ with our eyes fixed on him, the builder, the author of our faith. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for who Jesus is, your son, and what he did coming into the world to taking on flesh, going to the cross, dying, and paying the penalty for our sins. And thank you, Lord, that you brought him back to life to live forevermore. Lord, so we can fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us to grow in that together. Lord, to be a people who encourage each other as we live by faith, as we serve you, as we raise kids and as we work and go about our lives, Lord, that we're looking for opportunities, that we're part of your plan to encourage and build up your people. So Father, build this into our lives so that our hearts never get hardened to you. And Lord, one day, together, we'll enter your rest forevermore. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.